This is Let's Talk About Weed, the Cannaboomers podcast, CBD, microdosing, and all things related to medical cannabis for baby boomers. From San Diego, here's your host, Thomas J. Hi, it's Tom here with the Cannaboomers podcast, and this week we have Eric Gopel, CEO of the Veterans Cannabis Coalition, as our guest. They have a very important mission, and we're thrilled to have them as our guest. And uh, First, I want to say, you know, we, we hear a lot of people say to veterans, thank you for your service. And that's a great sentiment. To me, it, it doesn't go quite far enough. So I just want to say thank you to you and all of the men and women in uniform who have sacrificed a lot of time and energy and more than that. That's the way I'd like to kick it off and then get back to um, talking about cannabis. So Eric, um, you had a uh, an event last week on Memorial Day in Washington, D.C. Can you tell us about that? Sure. There's a gentleman, Derek Coltier, who's, uh, who is the founder of the New England Veterans Alliance. He basically put together a rally uh, in Lafayette Square right outside the White House in D.C. Uh, Saturday before Memorial Day. So that would be, I think, May 26th. Uh, he, he invited advocates from all over the country to come and speak, uh, but, and veterans to share their stories, essentially, uh, of how they've been dealing with... Uh, their injuries, you know, the, thing, the medications and treatments that they've been prescribed, you know, through the VA and private health, how those treatments have failed to really address a lot of the issues that they're facing, and how cannabis has helped in a lot of ways to mitigate or to provide relief um, for a lot of the complex uh, illnesses and injuries they're dealing with. So obviously, we continue to learn about this plant and, and its medicinal uses. Did you ever, 10, 15 years ago, think this is where you would be? Sure. No, I'm, I'm, I'm relatively young in the advocacy game. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm turning 33 this month. Uh, I, you know, I joined the Army when I was 18. I served for seven years. Um, and I did a stint as a defense contractor following that. So it's been about eight years um, between Iraq, Philippines, Afghanistan, stateside doing, you know, communications work for the most part uh, in the military and in the private sector. Uh, so are you were sort of intimately involved in the special forces uh, work or? Right. So I, I, was a, I was a communications and intelligence support staffer, for, you know, in a special operations unit. Um, I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't a Green Beret or I wasn't a Thor picker or anything. Um, you know, I, I'm one of the many guys that sort of help, or many people, I should say, that sort of helps... Uh, you know, keep the lights on and, and coordinate and direct, uh, the, you know, the operations that they engage in. In the course of your work, you were working with people who were on the on the front lines, more or less, and uh, in combat quite often. Right. The, the um, you know, the unit that I was working in, uh, it, yeah, essentially, the, you know, where they went, they often saw combat because, you know, they, we tried not to waste their time, right? In terms of, you know, they, they, they went where the action was, I guess, so you were able to see the effects of the cumulative effects of a lot of combat on on people. Tell me about how how it affects um, a human being to be in that kind of stress. Right. I, I mean, I guess yeah. I'm a pretty. I've witnessed this in, in several of my uh, friends and colleagues uh, who have spent you know, or and some of them are still in the service, still uh, still still special forces uh, now in leadership roles. So they're. You know, they're, they're less in the field these days, but still, it, we've been at war in Afghanistan for 17 years, right? We're, next year, we're coming up on, on an opportunity where 
there's there can be an 18 year old service member that will, that will die over there that will have you know been born after September 11th, right? And have never you know essentially missed the instigating um, the instigating event to this war. And there's not really much introspection or interest in figuring out like you know what we should be doing over there and how we should be doing it. It's essentially on autopilot, right? Right. You just keep set, keep feeding numbers over there. And special, special operations in, in particular has, has borne the brunt of that. And it's the, you know, the, the stress from being away from friends and family, being in austere, hostile conditions. I mean, just the, the regular rigors of combat, you know, seeing individuals, uh, you know, whether they're friends or, you know, bystanders uh, injured or killed. You know, all these things cumulatively, uh, you know, can contribute to things like PTSD, right? On top of that, you just you have the the physical um, injuries that, that that individuals like that sustain in terms of just skeletal muscular issues, right? Knees, back, ankles, right? These all shoulders. You're you're carrying gear and you're humping up and down the mountains in Afghanistan for you know months and years on end. It it'll, it will wear you down. Not to mention uh, you know blast exposure, both both like acute injuries when you think of like traumatic brain. You know, so there's a couple different like. Um, there's a spectrum of traumatic brain injury. There's something called, there's something in term like mild PBI, which is like a non-penetrating blast injury, so more like a, along the lines of a concussion. Mm -hmm. And there are, you know, severe um, or acute TBIs where there's like a penetrating injury. So, you know, shrapnel or something like that has uh, penetrated the skull. Right. Uh, so, uh, but a lot of, a lot of uh, service members end up with mild TBI if they don't have a report. Uh, and particularly, Service members who are in combat operations jobs, where they are exposed to like low-level, uh, low-level blast waves from from demolition charges, artillery, uh, you know, uh, crew weapons, and things of that nature, that that has a cumulative um, uh, like the generating effect on it as well. Which, interestingly enough, there's been a lot of research basically pointing to the fact that what is what is diagnosed as PTSD might actually be undiagnosed cumulative mild PBI, right? And how do you just, and because the, because what, uh, you know, the, the side effects of mild PBI often uh, demonstrate them, or, uh, you know, they often, those, those side effects often look like PBI injuries, right? Depression, anxiety, you know, with being withdrawn, aggression, inability to control, uh, you know, it, like, or regulate like your emotional state, things like that. And, and so, you know, the VA doesn't necessarily know this, right? Or, you know, private health, let's just put all, put all that out there. Both private health and the VA don't have a great sense of, like, what a base, you know, what these individuals' baseline brain state was. It's not like they're getting, you know, they've been getting MRIs their entire service career. So, you know, unless there was, like, an acute injury, they, they might not have ever gotten, like, an MRI or like a CAT scan or anything that might have revealed, um, you know, degenerative brain, you know, degenerative brain issues. And so they, you know, they, they end up out of the service with, with TBI injuries and that, that look like PTSD. And so they get drugs that are designed, or theoretically designed to treat PTSD. But in reality, they're treating a, a brain injury that, you know, or they're, you know, the underlying cause of the brain injury and they're not treating that because they're, you know, they think they're treating PTSD. And it's just, I guess that's a very long sort of uh, <laughs> long tangent 
to, to kind of get at what we're what we're dealing with, which is it's a complex series of issues where injuries sustained in service, not being well understood, even I'd say not being well understood, not being well documented is probably a better way to put it. It brings to mind like NFL players who get a lot of concussions. I mean, even in practice, they're they're getting hit in the head. You know, a soldier, maybe the concussive force of shooting a weapon that's not well understood, they certainly practice too. And then they're in combat and there's not, as you said, not well understood, possibly not properly diagnosed syndromes that, that are occurring. So you're saying they get diagnosed as PTSD and get treated for something that perhaps it's not even the correct diagnosis. You have misdiagnosis, lack of documentation. You also have just the, the treatments that they do have aren't even well suited for what they're supposed to be used for, right? SSRIs, you know, if you've got, you got PTSD and you have, uh, con, you know, um, like corresponding depression along with your PTSD and give you an SSRI, right? I guess SSRIs and antidepressants, they might work in some people, but, you know, if you're dealing with someone with complex trauma, that might not be the best, uh, like the best first, you know, the first choice as far as a, uh, you know, something to help with their depression. And in, and usually it's not just one thing, it's multiple drugs in conjunction, and they're all very powerful individually, right? So a lot of times veterans are ending up with, you know, I mean, I mean, really touched the opioid issue, but opioids, right? Benzodiazepine type drug, organic, monotone, plus like antidepressants like Seroquel, you know, plus the antipsychotic, you know, along with maybe, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, because now they're, they're taking all these downers and sedatives and tranquilizers, right? So they need something to perk them up, so they give them, you know, Adderall, which is amphetamine. So now you're on, you're now essentially you're doing a speedball, right? You're doing opioids, amphetamines, and benzos all simultaneously. And that even in a very healthy individual, is a, is a pretty big load, you know, a pretty big like, chemical load to put on your body. And to do that over time in an already, you know, in, in an injured individual, in, which is, you know, drugs aren't really helping, it's just sort of, you know, further deteriorating their state. It, you know, this is, it, it all sort of pulls back into this, into this bigger issue, right? Where, why are veterans overdosing and suicide why do veterans overdose and suicide at such higher rates than the rest of society? You know, their, their peers. Well, I mean, you can you know, can you, you, you have to look at, at, at their drug use and their, and their health care and their health state. You know, their, their, uh, the conditions they're dealing with. Private health, yeah, the private health and VA are not doing a great job of finding, you know, of designing treatments that actually work long term for a lot of these complex injuries. Right. It's a work in progress. You know, I I'm not taking away anything from the R and D that you know continues to uh, take place. But you know, we're staring at cannabis as as this bright shining um, opportunity for a broad spectrum of, of medical applications, and it's purely political will that's stopping us from from investigating. It's not a panacea. It's not going to be the, a magic bullet. What do we know about how it can help people for whom that cocktail of pharmaceuticals might not be working very well? So, I mean, I, I, look, at it, I look at it in a few ways, right? You do have what you don't have, right? And this is what everyone, you know, uh, prohibitionists especially like to point to. There is no FDA-approved, um, you know, double-blind, placebo-controlled study on, you know, human trial, right? With cannabis, smoke whole plant cannabis. Um, there, there have been tri- like C 
DVD in the, in the form of Epithelial-X and uh, you know, THC in the form of Drobinidol, uh, I believe, or Marinol is a, the market name, right? Those have both individually been approved as Schedule three drugs in their synthetic form. So the FDA doesn't have a problem with two major constituents in the cannabis plant. They just have a problem with the fact that the plant is not chemically reproducible. Right? There's not, you know, and the whole idea of like, you know, you have to have a uniform plant, essentially. Anyway, it's, it's a, that's more of like a process issue. But the existing research that has been done, and there's about 25,000 studies if you look on like PubMed, you know, concerning marijuana and cannabis and a variety of different, you know, forms, applications, looking at harms, looking at benefits. So there, there's a very good body of work. So last year, the National Academy of Sciences released a, a review of 10,000 cannabis studies or cannabis-related studies, and looking for you know where the strongest evidence you know for cannabis using for cannabis's use in certain treatments, and they found you know the top you know the top three strong and conclusive evidence um, for cannabis use was in chronic pain, epilepsy, and for um, like anti-emetics. Uh, you know, like the people going to the chemo and, you know, the, the helping treat nausea and, and vomiting, right? There, there you go. That's the National Academy of Sciences saying, we looked at 10,000 studies, we found strong evidence that cannabis is, is, you know, can be used for treating chronic pain. And that's the number one issue that is facing the VA and private health and just American healthcare right now, right? What is What are all, what are the alternatives to opioids for treatment for chronic pain? Because opioids have now very conclusively proven themselves to be, I don't want to say, I mean, there are some people who have, you know, who can get beyond fentanyl patches, you know, for decades. I'm not going to, you know, there, there are people that need that and should have access to that. But for the, I would, I would say for a, for a lot of, for a lot of individuals, cannabis with the lack of side effects that opioids have, you know, is, is a far better alternative. And observationally, right, I mean, the, the, the lived experience of millions of people, you know, for, for decades, I mean, just in this country, right, um, if, you, if you look just back, you know, starting with, uh, you know, the, hippie, the hippies and the, and the uh, anti-war movement and the consumption of cannabis, not like it ruined people's lives back then. And now, you know, you've got decades more of observational studies and you've got people that have been using it for self-treating themselves, you know, treating, uh, self-medicating for cancer issues and, you know, glaucoma and all these other uh, conditions that people have been dealing with for years. And they're like, well, this has been working for me and I don't have to do anything else. This is, like, I can manage my conditions with this and this along. All, all that tells me that there is, that, there, that we, there's enough evidence now to, you know, in my mind, to reschedule it completely. There's certainly enough evidence to, to spur, like, research, right? Like, there's no... <laughs> You know, if, if we're serious, if the government, if the federal government and, and Congress is serious about treating the opioid epidemic um, with, you know, with care it needs, right? Which is, you, need, you know, uh, one of the big issues again, developing alternatives to opioids for chronic pain. You know, they, they're doing this right, for, right to try bill, and they keep sort of dancing around this, but no, and they, no one has the, no one has the, the will right now to really, to really get this and and treat it like it should. You know, I, I don't expect, you know, legalization. In a, in a Republican uh, administration, but at the same time, they're you know they're they're really they're really dragging their feet even on very basic research. Right. You make a very compelling case. Obviously, it's just common sense. I mean, the the numbers of people who are dropping dead from opioid abuse, and we know that's 
that's not a good track to go down. So here we have an organic plant that um, observationally and with all the studies points to a, a pain reliever and useful in many ways. So what is your game plan and, and how can our listeners help? Well, the cannabis and, and the, whether you believe in legalization, whether you, you know, you just want to see it made made available in medicine, whether you, just, whether you just don't really care about it either, you just want to see it properly regulated, right? And you want to get rid of the black market. There's a lot of reasons, I think, why people have an interest in this. And sometimes, you know, they're overlapping. The bigger picture of, of this, is, it, this is, this issue is no different than any other public policy issue that has ever existed in this country, right? How, how have people in the past influenced their, you know, their members of Congress to do, to, to reflect the will of their constituents, right? Because right now, 93% of the country says, or, you know, they're in favor of, you know, medicinal cannabis. Congress won't even do research, won't even approve research. So there's obviously a, ma- a massive gulf within what the public believes and wants and what Congress is willing to do. But that, that you know, but listen, that's, you, you, you close that gap by educating, you know, constituents and saying, like, this is, a, this is an issue not just for veterans, you know, but for you know, children with epilepsy, for people with cancer, for, you know, people looking for alternatives to opioids and, or struggle, you know, for, you know, trying to transition away from opioids, you know, cannabis as, a, as an exit drug. You know, so there, there's a lot of touch points I think people can get into cannabis on, it, but it, it's, it's, really, it's really a matter of, yeah, you have to talk to your congressperson, but it's not just one conversation. This is, this is a process, a political process that, uh, let's just say, you know, short term, like you might be lucky if you get like a unified democratic government in 2020, or yeah, democratic administration Congress in 2021 to see like legalization but prior to that i mean it, it, they're going to be like piecemeal you know bills that are addressing you know the discrete aspects of this right so maybe a banking thing or you know maybe they'll say see, you know maybe they'll reschedule cbd uh or deschedule cbd completely for example or you know they'll make exceptions for like hemp extracts or you know there's, there's a variety of things that can be done that are that fall short of legalization that all move the ball forward but they all need to be done and right now we're we're struggling just to get something very basic done, which is a game plan for the VA to do research for cannabis. Like, it's not even a directive that the VA does research, it's a directive to create a plan to do research. And even still, like, we're, we're, we're seeing a lot, of, uh, a lot of resistance. We're waiting for our institutions to catch up with the, the will of the people, and, and that can take years. But in the meantime, it's recreationally available in seven or eight states now, I think, and, and medicinally, you can get a card in, I think, 29 states. For the individual, do you recommend that kind of action on, on their own to go and, and try this medicinally if, if the VA won't prescribe it or their own doctor won't? Right. For the, for the vets who, who live in either medicinal states where it's very limited what their options are, there are a lot of medicinal states, right, that have, you know, on paper, they're technically a medicinal program, but there's almost no way to access any product or the product that's available is very restricted in, in the uh, in its kind, right? So it's like only oils and only certain kinds of oils. In Virginia, they, you know, they, they've just uh, put together a state law that, you know, CBD oil with less than, or, you know, r- r- mixtures with less than like 5% THC oil, yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there's, there, yeah, there's movement at the state level, but ultimately, right, like if you want, if you want true le- access, you have to go to a legal, you know, you have to live in a legal state. Adult use state, mm-hmm. and you know, and for a lot of veterans, you know, Cal, you know, a lot of the states 
states that aren't legal are either out of the way or very expensive to live in, Massachusetts, California. But it's you know it, it's ultimately something that every every person has to make a choice for themselves, right? The doctors aren't necessarily going to be the most educated on it, and they're not going to be in a position to educate educate you. So you know there are if you live anywhere close in a legal in any legal state or a medicinal state, though there are opportunities. To organizations like Normal and Marijuana Policy Project and things like that to sort of educate yourself on, on cannabis, uh, which I would encourage anyone to do before they, uh, before they consume. But ultimately, I also recognize that the dangers, you know, as far as like harm reduction goes, cannabis is, is you know, no toxicity and one of the least harmful substances you could consume. So, I mean, I, you're, you're safe enough, I think, with some, you know, with, with some, uh, considered uh, research and, uh, and you know and, and, and trying to find some you know product that suits what you think, what your issues are because not a, you know smoking is not going to work for everybody uh, especially if you have any like lung or respiratory issues so finding topicals or edibles things, things of that nature I mean you gotta it, for, yeah for veterans it, it, it's important that they do that they educate themselves but those resources are out there at this point. And, and as you say, it's it's like any other um, public policy issue. There's the, the public policy piece. There's the the delivery piece that you just talked about. You know, smoking might not be it, but maybe it's vaping or a, a tincture or a, a topical or whatever. Uh, there's the accessibility. There's many angles to this. And as you mentioned, it's not uniquely a, a veteran-related issue. But veterans have much to gain through a, a more sane cannabis policy in this country. And the federal government has a unique obligation to veteran health to veterans to provide health care that they don't have any other group in this country. So I mean, the VA is a federal health care system that exists solely to you know basically help you know uh, provide care to vets. And because of that, you know, the VA is three hundred and fifty thousand people. It's one hundred eighty billion dollars. It's one of the you know it's essentially the most robust R and research medical research and development. Um, organization that we have in, the, in this country. It has the largest uh, integrated healthcare system in this country. So, I mean, like, the VA is an excellent place to make this happen, which is, you know, why, you know, vet- veterans, I think, can help bridge that gap between state legal um, efforts and federal, you know, uh, and, and ending federal, you know, cannabis prohibition. With some of this, you know, obviously the legalization might be a little far out, but we can certainly get get cannabis off Schedule One, right? Because that that is a huge issue, uh, just across the board, from everything from research to criminal sanctions and everything in between, right? The fact that it's treated like, uh, you know, essentially like heroin and methamphetamine. Yeah, certainly the VA could be the linchpin of, of greater societal change if there if there was if the VA could take the lead on this do you see any possibility of that you know is there leadership within the va that is open to doing more research on cannabis and you talk about harm reduction and you know budget friendly steps if you weren't uh, dispensing all those opioids and you, and you had cannabis you could save a lot of money and a lot of lives right i certainly think so i mean the the existing research and what it points to as as far as cannabis's potential medication or applications. I mean, it looks like it could be such a broad spectrum, um, you know, medicinal uh, therapeutic substance that, you know, it could it could replace entire classes of drugs, theoretically, right? I mean, again, not, it's not going to work for everybody, and there's always going to be places for opioids and, you know, benzodiazepine, things like that. In, in pharmacology, it's just a matter of what are you going to go to first? Why would you ever go to an opioid or a benzo first 
because you cannot pay for this, these other substances that you would give them, right? So the VA's role, both in research and development, in the way that it educates doctors, the VA always likes to talk about how it trains about 80%, or 80% of the country's uh, medical you know, doctor workforce will spend at least some, some point of, of their training or of their practice um, or professional career in the VA, in the VA or in a VA you know, hospital or something like that. So the VA has a huge impact on the state of medical education in this country. Huge impact on research and development. So exercise, and this is this is where veterans can help. Basically, we can we can you know through through veteran effort and through allied support, essentially we we can try to we can work the VA to do these things that we need it, that we need them to do, and therefore. I mean, and that, and that will be, in my mind anyway, the, the sort of, I guess, like, it'll, it'll knock a big uh, crop out from under, you know, uh, Canada's prohibition in general. Because the VA is great at doing, at doing R&D, and the stuff that they develop, you know, the public owns, you know. The VA created, like, the, you know, they created the pacemaker, they created the nicotine patch, created the hepatitis C vaccine, right? If directed and if properly resourced, they can create very... Um, long-term public good in in terms of medications, which is what I, which is what you know, we definitely want to see the VA do. I don't want to see some uh, proprietary, you know, super-manufactured synthetic uh, cannabis derivatives, you know, as as like the go-to. Right? I want to see, you know, I'd like to see some, like crude extracts that have been tested and you know, you know, trialed out. Basically, some you know something easily reproducible that is cheap that you don't have to go and spend thousands of dollars, or you know, uh, you know, per month, you know, treating an individual with these things. Sure. But yeah, cost savings is, is definitely huge. I mean, the and again, the, the the fact that it might be able to replace uh, you know a huge swath of existing uh, pharmaceuticals within the VA, or not if not replace, substitute. Um, yeah. I mean, but you, but just in just in saying all that, right? You see all the reasons why people, you know, there are there are financial interests against this because it's it, it's going to wipe out billions and billions of dollars in private R and D money that has been sunk in, right? And marketing and everything else. You mentioned alliances and prongs of attack. Where are you on the optimism pessimism scale of getting it descheduled, uh, getting getting to a place where it is the the front line medicine that's dispensed for pain, anxiety, PTSD, some some of the other things that uh, that it can help with? I mean, if you look at what like Mass is doing right now with their MDMA study, I mean they they've they've moved very quickly, or what seems like it's been very quickly in being able to get like breakthrough um, FDA approval for what was previously a Schedule One drug. So I, the processes are there to move cannabis medication once they decide to do it, like through the FDA process, I think relatively quickly, like within a few years. Now, to get to that point, though, I mean, I think you've got, I mean, this is, I guess, I'm, I'm, ult- I'm, ult- I'm ultimately optimistic because ultimately the states have changed this time. And the only reason why I have any leg to stand on federally is because, you know, not there are nine legal states right now. And because there are, there are now entrenched interests in both protecting what exists and expanding it. So that there's what you, you know, 10 years ago, there was none of this. There was none of that political momentum. Now it's sort of surging. It's not quite there. It's not quite enough to overcome the existing resistance. However, based on what I imagine to be a you know, potential democratic sweep in the House um, over the midterms, 
from the House going into the Senate who has control will definitely streamline, you know, getting cannabis-related, cannabis reform legislation through the House. But that still leaves it in the hands of the Senate. Now, the Senate, in general, I would say the Republicans, Republicans and Democrats, these moderate Republicans and Democrats are, are both better on cannabis than they are in the House. I'd say just, uh, you know, pound for pound. So I think they take, a, you know, more of a broader view in the Senate, as they should. So I think you can find that support in the Senate, but you need six, I mean, but if you want to avoid, you know, if you want to avoid a filibuster, you need 50 votes. So you need 218 votes in the House, you need 50 votes in the Senate to get any sort of cannabis legislation through. And you need to make sure the president is willing to sign it. You know, because if he's not, then you need your two-thirds to override that, right? So it's, uh, it, it's, it's still a fraught political process, and it's not something that advocates like myself you know, I always like to manage other people's expectations, right? It's, you know, it, the, the, the conversations that happen, you know, between members of Congress and the horse trading that they end up that, that they end up doing over issues like this, it's beyond, you know, <laughs> certainly beyond me. Um, you know, it's it, it, but but the the ultimate defense against this kind of uh, political derailing or, you know dismissing of this issue is keeping this in, on the, uh, on top of the political dialogue. And the way you do that is you have you organize um, you know constituents or you organize people with an interest in this issue to regularly engage with their with their congressperson, with their senators, you know, to show up to public events. I mean we're we're coming into the summer a summer midterm, thirty you know, a third of the Senate and all of the House are all running for reelection uh, over the next several months. So there's, you know, hundreds of opportunities to, you know, to ask politicians how they stand on, on, you know, cannabis and research. And, you know, if you care about the opioid issue, why do you not care about, you know, researching cannabis with alternative to opioids? You know, when, when uh, NIDA studies that they're doing in Colorado, you know, that the, the people have been pointing to uh, over the last few months showing reductions in opioid overdoses, the use of, op overall use of opioids, the less duration of opioid uh, prescriptions, right, where they have state legal cannabis programs. So the overprescription of opioids, known issue, we know that's an issue, but, <laughs> but we, and, yet we, and we keep coming back to this, this point where it's like, okay, cannabis, right, cannabis is that, cannabis is, it could be the alternative. It seems, you know, observationally like this, this is definitely, uh, it definitely has legs. And the existing research all points in this direction. So why won't you do it? And when you hold the, when you hold their feet to the fire like that, and it's not and it's, again, it's not can't just be once. This is this is a you know a long campaign in terms of changing something that's been in place for almost you know over eighty years now. I mean, Canada's prohibition. It's not something that we're going to dismantle in, in you know in one bill, or you know it's not something that we're going to settle in one conversation. And there's a lot of little pieces that are going to have to be, they're going to be fought over as we advance down the line. But ultimately, it's going toward legalization. I just don't, I don't see how that, how it could not. And for me, I'm, I'm just not optimistic for the United States because of that. I mean, I, I, you know, once the United States takes out cannabis prohibition, it knocks out the legs of the entire global uh, cannabis prohibition, right? U.S. has been propping, <laughs> has been propping up this drug war and essentially demanding that others abide by our policies for decades in order to deal with us, right? If you want aid, well, then you got to make sure that you're destroying, you know, uh, your opium fields and your, you know, your coca fields and uh, no one's growing weed. Um, and so, this, you know, so the United States changing, changing that at a federal level, I think, would usher in, you know, a mass 
massive re you know re reanalysis or uh, reexamination of just drug global drug policy in general, which is, is long overdue. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So I mean, I see you know I see legalization as as a great thing so, and it's going to be groundbreaking, but it's ultimately just one more one more piece of this you know drug war puzzle that we're that we're starting to uh, put together, and we're realizing right. Criminalization doesn't work. Prohibition doesn't work. Treatment works. Education works. Giving people alternatives works. Right. Right. people in jail for, for decades, or you know, for years, ruining their lives over possession, over addiction, or substance use, or uh, substance use disorders, whatever. Uh, right. It, it, you know, we, we create these cycles, and we wonder why nothing changes. And you know. Something has to something has to be done to break it. We haven't quite bro- we haven't figured out how to break the opioid cycle yet. You know, we're, we're still we're still going around and around. It's like naloxone treatment dollars. You know, but there's not really any real money. There's no real political will. You know, cannabis has been doing this the same sort of cycle for a while. But we're far. I think we're within a few years of breaking it once and for all. You broke down the numbers in terms of uh, the House of Representatives in the Senate and what needs to happen there. Do you take it as a hopeful sign when John Boehner signs on as sort of a lobbyist? Is that a move in the right direction? Ultimately, you know, because, you know, is John, is John Boehner, this is, I guess, the question, is John Boehner going to be able to convince anyone, because he has relationships with a lot of members of Congress, right? Uh, but, you know, he has a relationship with Paul Ryan and, you know, uh, and uh, Kevin McCarthy, right? Majority and majority leader in the, and speaker. So, I guess my question, my challenge would be, you know, John Boehner, if he's listening to this, right? I mean, like, walk the walk. I mean, do something concrete. You know, do an event in D.C. Invite all your Republican friends. You know, put veterans in front of them and have them tell their stories. Right? I mean, he he mentioned veterans specifically when he talked about why he evolved on the issue. You know, at, he had been hearing about you know how this helped veterans. Okay, as well. Yeah. You know, you were speaker for like five years and you were in the and you were in Congress for twenty prior to that. And you had no problem voting voting us to war for the last, you know, seventeen years. You know, and it's only now when you're out of power, like so many others, not just John Boehner, right? Eric Holder and members of the Obama administration have all sort of, you know, come around and like, Oh, you know, marijuana's not addictive or David Act I just saw a tweet from David Axelrod about um, you know, the, uh, the parents in Georgia who had their child taken away because they had medicated him with cannabis. Mm, yeah. Right? Yeah. And David Axelrod had mentioned, like, oh, well, hey, you know, that, that must be awful. And, you know, how would anyone else react? And it's like, I, you know, we all just, we were in power for eight years, you know, and cannabis was never a priority for the, I mean, until the very end, and it was, you know, through the coal memo, you know, and, and more just taking a hands-off approach, which don't get me wrong, that was huge because it allowed us, it allowed the legal, the state legal industries to at least develop in some form to the, to the point we have today. But ultimately, we know an executive order can reschedule cannabis. He can tell the DEA administrator essentially, uh, essentially to to change, you know, to re, you know to re, to reevaluate. The FDA and DEA both have you know a, a great deal of control over the scheduling of every of drugs under the Controlled Substances Act. And they both fall under the authority of the executive branch and the president. So the president has a great deal that he can do, or any every, any president has a great deal that they can take it to uh, on cannabis. When they choose not to, that tells me it's, it's not a priority and it's not something that they're willing to 
issue, it just it's not going to magically become one. And you make it an issue by by finding means of politely pressuring essentially your your representatives to take this to take this seriously. Yes. It, it re- because the, the convers- a lot of conversations that I have in you know talking to staff members uh, in DC, you know, it comes back to I was talking about a specific bill, for example. They're saying, well, you know, we haven't heard anything from from our constituents or from veterans in our district. It's like, okay, well, I mean, are they necessarily going to know about some obscure bill that you know dropped a couple months ago? That you know, it's not like it could have gotten some of the attention, but let's, let's be honest, there's. 15 other stories that bury anything cannabis related on any given news deck. So it, it, it almost never headlines anything. An executive order could change this tomorrow, but that's wishful thinking not going to happen. Uh, a guy like yeah. Boehner is an incremental step, but there's also a, a PR angle to this. And, and as you alluded to earlier, there, there's 80 years of propaganda that we're just getting over and the, the, the stigma is going away. Stuff like Sanjay Gupta on CNN, every time he does a special, I'm, I'm kind of blown away. You know, First it was showing little kids seizuring and, and giving them some cannabis and showing, wow, this really changes their life. Then he shows how it can help with opioids. But that kind of um, PR, and maybe it's you know related to that letter writing campaigns or you know online action or the things that mobilize people to to make this more of a newsworthy item to get the word out right yeah i mean and there's and there's a variety of ways i mean we're building i'm building out an additive council because um i've noticed that you know while there wasn't a lot of cannabis veteran cannabis specific presence in dc working on this issue there were independent, you know, independent advocates all over the country um, who were veterans who were working on um, stuff related, either you know, touching on can- you know, cannabis specific or touching on cannabis, like veteran suicide. Right? Uh, so we're, I've been in the process and I've gotten buy-in from from about uh, you know, a little over half a dozen advocates right now, and forming sort of like an initial national network of advocates that we can information share and coordinate on these kind of campaigns. They all have their own networks, their own communities, right? I mean, that, that's the thing. We need what, we need to leverage, you know, action in these districts and states in, into uh, results in D.C. And that has to be kind of strategic and targeted. We don't have necessarily we're not going to leave unlimited resources. Right? Um, you know, so right now we're looking at uh, the eight Democratic senators who are all running in, you know, red or purple states who, as it, you know, not surprisingly, are, don't really have super pro-cannabis positions. You know, you can focus all day on the Republicans, but if you don't shore up the Democrats, the moderate Democrats in the uh, in the Senate and the House, you know, you're, you don't have your, your doomed to failure, essentially, right? You, you, can split, you can split a handful, you know, maybe 20 or 30 Republicans in the House, maybe seven or eight, and let's say 10, you know, in the Senate, but you're still going to need in the entire uh, Democratic caucus unified if you want to do anything next year. Let's put it that way. We're, you know, we're, we're looking at in, we're looking at political, uh, you know, the, the campaign that's being done around the country as opportunities to reach out and let get constituents to let let their members of Congress know that this is something that they're concerned about and prompting them to, you know, put, get put their position down. A lot of because it's not a priority issue, so a lot of politicians have been able to avoid. Um, anything close to like a like a definitive stance on cannabis, you know, beyond just like maybe some news bites or like you know sound bites as, as far as that 
So yeah, I mean, the, the political part of this, it, it's it, you know, it's like anything else. It, it, it has to. We have to make this a, a priority for voters. And once it's a priority for voters, it'll be a priority for for representatives. Well, and I mean, you've certainly um, laid out the the challenges. I mean, there's there's inertia. There's well entrenched interests. Pharmaceutical companies. There's there's other issues. You're fighting the new cycle um, and and just the math of of getting everyone lined up. How can our listeners help? How can we help uh, move this forward? Okay, so I guess if you want to do concrete steps, we have a call to action tool. So now I can share this. I don't, know, I don't know if you want to share a link. I can, there's also like a text they can do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll, we'll share a link. So, and... so they, they, can, they can text VCC, that's Victor Charlie Charlie for Veterans Cannabis Coalition, to 52886, and it will send them a link that will that allow them to do, you know, basically it's it, it created like a forum email, a forum tweet, and a forum Facebook post, and they have the option of, of doing, you know, one or all three. Um, as well as call, calling their congressperson uh, through the uh, through the link that they get. You know, the bill that right now we're supporting a bill at uh, HR 5520 and S2796, the VA Medicinal Cannabis Research Act. Now, this is the bill, the first is the first of its kind bill that, or can, the first of its kind cannabis piece, or sorry, try that again, the first of its kind cannabis-related piece of legislation that has ever gone through regular or do, regular order. Uh, in Congress, right? So it has gone through a subcommittee hearing, it has been marked up, it has been passed out of committee, it is now sitting, you know, waiting to be scheduled for a vote in the House. You know, there, there are about 40 other pieces of cannabis legislation, and none of them have even made it past uh, a subcommittee hearing. Right now, it's, you know, it, it, it's sort of idling. Uh, it's not dead by any means. We're, 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 working, um, we're working on the Senate Companion Bill this summer. We're also, as I was talking about, uh, working with advocates to do direct, you know, do action in districts uh, and states where these individuals are running and trying to get them on the record and getting them supportive of it. So, you know, we we've got to work. Listen, <laughs> there's the reason why this hasn't happened yet, right? Is because there's a ton of work and it's a lot of lot of moving pieces that, as an individual advocate, uh, you have very little control over, right? But what, what do we have control over? We have control over what we, the actions we take. So, you know, we're, we're working to build relationships with staff and members of Congress and find champions, in, you know, among them. We're working with other advocates to, you know, put pressure on, you know, people in their communities, in their networks to, you know, be more active in supporting something like this. So it, it's, you know, without money, you know, you, you have to you have to rely on essentially communications and uh, and influence sort of operations. I guess uh, turn it you know turn it back to like a military frame. I mean, it's not it's not it's much any different than what we've. It's winning hearts and minds. Let's put it that way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it's not something I, I like to I like to point to too much because I don't like to do too many military parallels to politics because it's it, you know it seems a little unseemly, but. The way that the, that the military has conducted in itself in like influencing and information, right? It's just you know systematic. You identify, you know, individuals. You know who, who's in their network. You know who are important individuals in those in, in those networks, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, Warren Hatch, for example, right? He he one of the oldest. He is the he's the, the president pro tem of the Senate, which means he's the eldest, or the most senior serving senator um, right now. So he's retiring, but 
seen in the last in the last couple of years. He had a, he had a, you know like a 180 on cannabis, and that was because you know he someone in his in his personal circles uh, shared a story of I think it was a child I think it was a child that was being treated uh, with cannabis for epilepsy. So or, yeah, so. You know, it, it, it's these personal stories that can sort of break down seemingly, um, you know, insurmountable obstacles. You know, I, I don't think anyone would have guessed that Warren Hatch would be one of the Republicans to come around on on cannabis, even as it relates to, I mean, I'm saying he's like a strong supporter, but he's at least supportive of research and he likes CDB, right? And that's far more than you can say for, for most uh, members of Congress, not just Republicans, but just, you know, entirely. So we see what we see what works with politicians, and it's pressure, and it's personal stories. You know, it's getting the right message, the right message in the you know from the right messenger in front of them. Um, you know, but luckily there's only a finite number of buttons that need to be pushed with any one office. Uh, it's just you know we, we have to focus as best we can on where we think we're going to do the most, uh, on have the most impact, and hope, and and basically and try to work with others in the movement. You know, to divide and conquer, more or less. Right? We're we're not trying to do this whole thing ourselves. We can't. <laughs> Just a, like a physical impossibility. But you know, you know that that's that's the that's the part of the coalition building. Absolutely, and to strain the the military metaphor a little further. You're you're in the trenches and you're uh, you're just making incremental progress. And uh, I want to offer our support, and we'll definitely have our listeners uh, text to VCC five two eight eight six, and also like to send them to your website. It's veterans full word V E T E R A N S Canna C A N N A Coalition. VeteransCanacoalition.org. We will definitely send our listeners there and continue to support the important work you're doing. Thank you again for your, your service in the military and for helping push this extremely important issue forward in, in all the work you're doing. Hey, yeah, Tom, thank you so much. Thanks for uh, having me on and, and thanks for the work that you're doing. I mean, this the messaging, I mean, like the narratives, the stories, uh, this is all part of it, man. So uh, happy, to, happy to help any way I can in the future, too. So let me know. Thanks so much, Eric. You've been listening to Let's Talk About Weed, the Cannaboomers podcast with Thomas J. For more on medicinal cannabis for baby boomers, visit us at cannaboomers.com.